0: I.V.M. Welcome to States of Anarchy, a podcast on global affairs and foreign policy. I'm your host, Hamsane Hariharan. Every week on the show, I tackle issues in global affairs and foreign policy, all in the hope of making a little more sense of the world around us. This is our special Q&A episode where I answer questions that you've sent in on Instagram or Twitter or email. And to be honest, it's my favorite part of the show. Let's begin. Today, we have three questions. The first two are on a similar line. They're from Tara and Mohamed Balig. Taha asks, can you explain the Syrian civil war? And Mohamed Balig asks, what's the way forward for Syria a decade after the war broke out? Thank you for your questions, Taha and Balig. Syria was thrown into turmoil 10 years ago and it continues to suffer with no clear end in sight. So how did the Syrian war start? Well, to provide some context, we'd have to go back to the Arab Spring in 2011, which inspired pro-democracy activists in Syria to protest against corruption and the general ineptitude of the government headed by Bashar al-Assad. But unlike other countries... The Assad government did not want to understand public sentiment or to compromise. So the Syrian government cracked down brutally on protesters. The supporters of the opposition then armed themselves for self-defense, and violence escalated. The country descended into a civil war as rebel brigades were formed to battle government forces for the control of cities, towns, and the countryside. Fighting reached the capital Damascus and the second city of Aleppo in 2012. Now, the rebel groups popped up in hundreds, and soon enough, foreign powers entered the mix too. The war extended into neighboring countries like Iraq, Turkey, Jordan, Lebanon, all the way up to Israeli-occupied Golan Heights. But it doesn't end there. The unrest in Syria was a magnet for extremist jihadist organizations. This is when the Islamic State or ISIS and the al-Qaeda come up very heavily in the region. In this chaos, another other group was fighting for self-governance without rebelling against Assad. These were the Syrian Kurds who, along with Kurds in Turkey and Iraq, wanted a separate Kurdistan. And this added yet another layer to the conflict. The most difficult part of the war, of course, is the toll that it took on people. A BBC report cited that the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights documented 387,118 deaths in the war until December 2020. And the Syrian government is responsible for about 1,56,000 of those deaths. Apart from this, more than 2.1 million civilians have suffered injuries or permanent disabilities. The Syrian refugee crisis is one of the most pressing outcomes of the war, with over half of Syria's 22 million people fleeing their homes. The death toll, along with the mass migration, meant that Syria's growth rate was at minus 9.73, the lowest anywhere in the world. The external interference from other countries is what's fueled the war for so long. Along the lines of Cold War alliances, Russia and Iran have supported the Assad government, while US and NATO states oppose the Assad government. The US-led coalition of the US, the UK and France used to arm rebel groups. But this strategy ran into problems after the rise of ISIS. They also deployed troops, carried out airstrikes to back Kurdish and Arab militia alliances, called the Syrian Democratic Forces or the SDF. Though Turkey is a vocal supporter of the opposition, there is some animosity between them and the Kurds. This is because the Turks suspect that the People Protection Units, or the YPG, which makes up most of the Syrian Democratic Forces, is an extension of a banned Kurdish rebel group within Turkey. It's difficult to point out a single dominant power in Syria of today, Although the government has regained control over the country's biggest cities, the rebels, the jihadists, the Kurdish SDF, all whole large parts of the country. Now, coming to Balig's question, what is the way forward for Syria? Is this war ever going to end? And if so, how? Obviously, the war needs a political solution. In an interview with the National Herald, the Syrian economist Omar Dahi calls for a Syrian-led political settlement. But we'll see how the solution isn't solely in Syria's hands. The United Nations Security Council has proposed the implementation of the 2012 Geneva communique. It basically calls for transitional governing bodies formed on the basis of mutual consent. But the peace talks, known as the Geneva II process, fell through. Because there was no consent from President Assad, All the settlements proposed by the opposition call for Assad to step down, which he outright refuses. Now, a 150-person committee was supposed to write a new constitution for Syria, and this was supposed to be followed by free and fair elections under the supervision of the United Nations. However, even in 2021, the UN special envoy K. P. Dersen admitted that they hadn't even begun the reform drafting process. He also pointed out that with five foreign armies active in Syria, Syria can't really act alone in ending the conflict. Now, following the failure of the Geneva II process, Russia, Iran and Turkey decided to take matters into their own hands. In 2017, they set up parallel political talks known as the Astana process. Unfortunately, due to the unease that I mentioned before between Turkey and the Kurds, the Astana process excluded the Kurdish SDF so that they could just get Turkey on board. This process did yield some success. It resulted in ceasefires and more importantly, four de-escalation zones in Idlib, Homs, Gauta and along the Jordanian border. However, the United States and its NATO allies are worried that this means ceding to Russia's end goal, which is to help Assad gain control over all of Syria. Right now, it's clear that the Assad government will not allow for a glimmer of opposition. And as we mark a really grim, And as we mark a really grim 10 year anniversary of this terrible, violent catastrophe, displaced Syrians around the world are just waiting to go back home. Reconstruction and reconciliation are not easy and they're not quick. What's going to happen to rebel leaders if they do agree to lay down arms? What about jihadist groups that are still active? What about the networks of arms and armaments that are in the region? These are many questions about how we can ensure peace in Syria. But unfortunately, none of these questions have easy answers. Now, coming to our second question for today's episode. Ujwal Raj Sen on Instagram asks States of Anaki about the reasons for IORA not being a strong collective. Firstly, thanks, Ujwal, for the question. After a quad in the last episode, I think it's good to look at other multilaterals that India is part of. IORA, or I-O-R-A, or the Indian Rim Ocean Association, is a regional initiative based on the Indian Ocean. The association includes 23 states that border the Indian Ocean and 9 dialogue partners. The IORA is the only pan-Asian forum for the Indian Ocean. Now, you have to remember that vital trade routes with sustained global and regional economies pass through the Indian Ocean. Approximately 80% of the world's oil passes through the Indian Ocean mostly because of India, Japan, China, and South Korea, and other drivers of economic growth. This is also a region which sees many threats, ranging from security threats like piracy, state conflict, terrorism, to non-traditional threats like climate change, natural disasters, development issues, etc., etc. Now, despite this, the IORA doesn't feature heavily in our political discussions, apart from a few mentions here and there. And it doesn't get the attention that the Indian Ocean and its issues deserve. So like Ujwal, I think it's an important question to just ask, what stops the IORA from being a stronger and active collective? Maybe one reason for the IORA's slow progress is that it's a very young initiative. The organization formally took birth only in 1997 at the turn of the century. Successful regional collectives like the Association of Southeast Asian Nations or ASEAN were formed much earlier in the 1960s and 70s during the boom in regional organizations. These organizations have had much more time to define and debate and deliberate on their issues. Or there are other organizations like the European Union, um, which have a strong regional identity and that makes assimilation and functioning of the organization easier. IORA has neither of these things. And while states do share the identity of being on the Indian Ocean Rim, it isn't really binding or even majorly cultural. Secondly, the member countries of the IORA are all developing countries with their own regional and sub-regional issues. Understanding and taking into account the individual needs and capacities of 23 states, all diverse in terms of regions, politics, economics and culture, is not a fun ride and definitely not a short one especially not when the organization is member-driven and consensus-based. And other reason is that since the IORA doesn't have binding terms, states prefer their own regional or sub-regional platforms to address issues. In fact, the IORA explicitly states that anything which can cause conflict would be kept out of discussions as one of its principles. The IORA doesn't have any conflict resolution mechanisms for its members, All cooperation is consensus-based without anything being mandatory. There's also no provision for mandatory reciprocation to provide any incentives for a contributing state. This makes the organization a little less preferable than other regional organizations who have strict guidelines and binding resolutions and treaties. The IORA is supposed to be complementary instead of replacing any other bilateral or multilateral arrangements. Its problem is just that, It's remained just a complementary platform without shifting into high priority for any of its members. The IORA's goals are also broad and diverse, along with its priority areas. True, it does include business and academic communities so that it can take fiscal and well-researched decisions, but that requires time. Coupled with the consensus policy, it'll be some time before the IORA can fully steam ahead with its efforts on priority areas. Lastly, the IORA, while being a pan-ocean organization, does not have every country as a member state. Pakistan, Saudi Arabia and Myanmar are not a part of it. While Pakistan has been discluded courtesy of India, Saudi Arabia and Myanmar have been discluded because of other concerns by member states. This limits three countries with significant states in the ocean from being part of the largest platform in it. This doesn't mean that the IORA has no potential to be a strong collective. With increased attention to the Indian Ocean and its rim states, the IORA's popularity within global powers is increasing. Just in December last year, one of the P5 nations, France, also joined the IORA as a member state, a claim staked on its reunion island in the ocean. The USA and China are already dialogue partners. Russia has been trying hard to get in as a dialogue partner. Since 2015, when the Indian government announced its Sagar policy, the security and growth for all in the region, India has also been attaching increased importance to the Indian Ocean. Its participation in IORAS programs, seminars and initiatives have really been laudable. In my opinion, because of the reluctance of the IORA to address issues to enforce binding resolutions and trade agreements. It can't become a collective in the sense of being a proper economic or social bloc. It's a platform for enhanced cooperation on regional issues. And to some degree, it works. These issues would include free and uncoerced trade, anti-piracy, rescue missions, humanitarian assistance and disaster relief, climate change, etc. So an important takeaway from all of this would be that While the IORA is definitely important in terms of geographical regions and issues it covers, would it be a solid NATO or EU-type collective that one would think about in the future? Probably not. Anyway. That brings us to the end of this episode of States of Anarchy. Thanks for tuning in. And also thank you to Taha, Balig and Ojwal for their questions. If you also have a question about anything in international relations then get in touch. You can email me at anarchy at gmail.com or you can slide into my DMs on Instagram at statesofanaki or on Twitter at HumSneyH. If you want to show us some love, send this episode to someone who you think may enjoy it. You can also leave us a rating on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. If you want to be more involved, check out our Insta page where we post regularly about foreign policy and even quizzes where you can check out how much you know about the world. You can listen to States of Anarchy not only on the IVM podcast app or website, but on any other podcast app that you use. We'll be back next week.